Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I feel like all those just preconceived notions of bird watching that, you know, you have to be quiet and wear like camouflage clothing. Right. <laughs> have to, you know, walk slowly. Like, no, the the birds don't care about all of those things. <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it's so nice to see you again. Yeah. But I have to ask, whose voice was that we heard at the top of the show? So that voice belongs to Isaiah Scott, who is an ornithologist and birder. Interesting. So why did you want to speak with Isaiah? Well, I first became aware of his work through his Instagram, Ike's Birding Hikes, and I just <laughs> loved how enthusiastic he was about birding. And the more that I learned about him, the more that I learned about his efforts to make bird watching, which I think is stereotypically seen as a pretty staid kind of hobby, mm -hmm. seem more accessible and fun. I love the idea of using social media to get people interested in birds and birding. Mm -hmm. And obviously only a very small number of people will actually be able to join Isaiah on one of his birding hikes. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like his Instagram feed is getting a lot of people all over the country to head out into the woods. What does he do to make birding attractive to more people? I think part of it is just by virtue of who he is. He's relatively uh -huh. young as he's currently a student at Cornell and he's also Whoa. not white, which I think mm -hmm. is pretty important. And he also makes it very clear that birding isn't about seeing who has the best equipment or who sees the most birds on a hike. It's about having fun and also about community just as much as it is about the birds. Like it's not a game that you're trying to win. Yeah. That's so cool. And I believe you asked him a question that is intended exclusively for Slate Plus members. Mm -hmm. What will they hear? So for Slate Plus, I talked to him about the field guide that he's working on and how it has changed from what he initially envisioned as he's been researching and working on it. Wow, that sounds super interesting. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear that at the end of the show. And if, for some unfathomable reason, you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, why don't you sign up today? You'll get extra segments on shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. A few shows like One Year and Big Mood, Little Mood even produce entire episodes just for Slate Plus members. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate side. Of course, you'll also be supporting our work and Slate's work. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's listen to Karen's conversation with Isaiah Scott. Hello, Isaiah. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and I'm very excited to speak to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I first became aware of you and your work through your Instagram, Ike's Birding Hikes. Can you explain what a birding hike is? Yeah, so a birdwatching hike 
is basically the act of going out into a outdoor space or a place in nature and observing, kind of exploring and learning about uh, birds and of the natural habitat. And a hike can be anywhere, <laughs> cities, parks, or even out in the mountains or in a swamp. So just where the birds are and the whole goal is just to have this kind of community-oriented way of connecting with nature and mm-hmm. just learning about the amazing animals, specifically birds, that we share the same space with in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so you lead birdwatching hikes yourself. How do you prepare to lead a hike? What, what are the key differences between leading something like this and participating in one? To prepare for leading a hike, um, some things that I do for hikes, burning hikes, mm-hmm. I usually go out into the areas and just get a feel what bird species people are able to expect. So I'll be able to mm-hmm. point out birds and identify them and just learning about where you're going, I guess the the place you're hiking at, maybe like the natural history or like the cultural history or just like the physical walking areas, like where, where there's some good places and trails mm-hmm. and just kind of prepare to have fun and have a successful birdwatching hike. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the funnier aspects about a birdwatching hike, where when you're by yourself, you don't really need to worry about like anyone else with you. But when you are someone who's leading a hike like this, it's not just bird watching, you're like you're people watching to an extent where you have to kind of like gauge the mood of like how the group is doing. I don't know, was there any sort of like learning curve as you were starting to lead these hikes? It's like, oh, like this is how best to sort of deal with groups like what do I do if someone's not having a good time and stuff like that yeah no when I like initially when I started just working with people and just leading hikes mm-hmm. I was just very shy and I was <laughs> um, you know it was really just kind of definitely something that I had to um, get used to and it can be like a challenge just making sure like to engage and speak with everyone and just Mm -hmm. make sure everyone is really just getting the best experience out of the bird watching hike and so I always just try to make sure I don't know randomly like if there's not a bird maybe speak to someone's like hey or um, just kind of be more engaged with the crowd and also like whenever I see a bird I always spot it out but I also encourage other people to be like, hey, if you see something cool or bird, yeah, yeah, be sure, you know, spot it out. Say, hey, there's a there's a pileated woodpecker over there. Or, <laughs> or not even if it's a bird, if it's like, oh, some cool flowers. And that's really just pointing out things, cool things in nature, animals, plants, or like different or rock features or whatever can appeal to like everyone's interest. Yeah. And speaking of, I guess, sort of crowds and community, I also want to talk about your Instagram presence a little more because I've read in other interviews with you that the online birding community was really important for you to find, especially starting out and feeling like you were kind of alone and unrepresented. I'm curious if you recall like what maybe profiles or sites you were looking at and what the experience was of growing your own online community and following. Really just growing up in getting into bird watching initially I didn't really see myself like other people that look like me or any other like older 
of black men or women or just people bird watching. So I yeah. really kind of came in and was I kind of recognized there was this issue where it was a predominantly white space. And so I kind of sought to be a representation for other people in the field. But through social media, that was just a really good way to just connect with other bird watchers and people in the in the nation and just around the world. And uh, this event called Black Birders Week, which launched in 2020, oh, wow. uh, which yeah. is three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, basically it's a week long event that was in light of a situation that happened in Central Park with um, mm-hmm. Christian Cooper, who was a, yeah. a black bird watcher, was racially profiled. And so this event was really just a week-long celebration and recognition of black people in the field of bird watching and in nature and in outdoor spaces who have a love and passion for birds and to the whole goal of just sharing bird watching with other people. And so I was able through Black Birders Week just be able to connect and have this sense of community and to be yeah. a part of a, a, a black bird watching community and that's what we kinda call yeah. ourselves and we all <laughs> we all DM each other and like follow each other like and <laughs> just speak, do collaborations. Yeah. And I I really admire like the stuff that you said about wanting to make sure that no one feels the kind of discouragement that you were feeling when you came into the birdwatching space, that you don't want it to be something that's kind of gatekept in a way. Um, Can you speak a little bit to like kind of the old rules of birding? Like you've said, they include, quote, like wearing drab clothing, being quiet, that you don't that you need all of this gear in in order to be able to participate or have to have this very scientific mindset. Can all of these rules go out the window, do you think? Yes, definitely. Like when I <laughs> first started, you know, I already, already kind of knew like the assumptions with that bird watchers are usually older white people that bird watch something that's done as like a retirement activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, when I started bird watching, I really just wanted to change the face and change what a birder looked like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, me being a young black boy that likes to wear just very colorful, just, you know, <laughs> drippy clothing, you know, I guess that's, you know, that's the term we use, um, and just like to express themselves outdoors, have to sometimes be loud, you know, just say funny jokes, some just laugh, and I feel like all those just preconceived notions of bird watching that you know you have to be quiet and wear like camouflage clothing right. and <laughs> have to you know walk slowly like no no the the birds don't care about all of those things <laughs> and <laughs> and um also have this saying like time back to the clothing like you want to look good for the birds like you want to wear like a nice <laughs> outfit you know some colorful clothes yeah, I, I guess this is sort of a tangent, but speaking of fashion, you, you have very great fashion sense. I mean, you've also uh, collaborated with LL Bean, a very, I, I guess, famous label at this point. How have you, what led you to want to collaborate with them? And also, like, as these offers have come to you, like, what distinguishes something you want to do versus something that you would rather pass on? Yeah, so 
with Aloe Bean, I believe it was... I think it was also in 2021 mm-hmm. that I received a DM from LL Bean, and so <laughs> I was like, I was like, what? This this clothing brand company <laughs> just like just messed me on Instagram, and and so I, um, yeah, they offered to do a um, collaboration, mm-hmm. um, a paid partnership for I think it was like a fall and winter collection that they were doing. And so I was very interested that that was just be great for birding, also make you look good while you're <laughs> outside bird watching, you know, have a little little birding fashion, birding drip. And so <laughs> just by like continuing with Ike's birding hikes and making posts, then I started getting other offers from other outdoor clothing brand companies mm-hmm. and uh, apparel. Um, like I work with REI mm-hmm. and Outdoor Afro and REI Co-op, uh, Knox Binoculars, which is a binocular company out from California, which they have very just stylish binoculars. I can also you can match with the outfits, you know. <laughs> and so, so really, just um, I really mainly look like with these paid partnerships and uh, brands that reach out to me. It's just look to see if their values or if their brand realigns with mine with like spreading hikes like just having clothing that yeah just invokes joy and a love for nature yeah i i also i love the phrase birding drip i feel like that alone yeah. will get a few more <laughs> yeah. people into birding um but to talk about i guess trying to open up the world of birding to others in a way. I, I understand that you are also the chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in Cornell's Birding Club. What does that position entail? Or like, what kind of work are you trying to do um, from that position? So uh, last year, I, I was the um, chair of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That role has been passed on to another student now. Mm-hmm. But during that time, uh, my role was particularly I just kind of recognize the issue of just lack of diversity and the Burden Club really just catered to just a set amount of people, just mainly mm. people who are um, ENS majors or already have like an interest in bird watching similar to I do. Yeah. But I just had a goal in visiting just just reaching out to other clubs and organizations and uh, just getting more of groups of people involved in the club. So I mainly um, did that through with birdwatching hikes. Yeah. And I I led hikes uh, where just anyone can come, just local hikes on campus. And it was just a really huge success. And just not even just students, but it was like grad students and people that lived around in the local area. And oh, cool. professors, and they would bring their children and just like really just show how just really expanding the birding community mm-hmm. and so it was really fun uh fun time uh doing that <laughs> we'll be back with more from karen's conversation with isaiah scott after this What's 
the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Listeners, I hope you've been enjoying Working Overtime, which is a bi-weekly bonus version of Working focused on listener questions. You can catch it every other Thursday. We love to give advice and we want to answer your questions or respond to your concerns and generally share ideas on that show. Is there a creative problem you're struggling with or a creative practice that's working really well for you right now? Well, drop us a line at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Karen's conversation with Isaiah Scott. So we've talked about a little bit of the work that you do like with other people, but I also want to talk about your personal research. So you began a project to document the Gullah Geechee people's relationship to the coastal landscape. Um, I wanted to ask you how you first came to know about the region and what captivated you about it and what made you want to research further. Yeah, so um, Gullah Geechee people are descendants of enslaved 
um, African people along the southeast coast, and this included the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and northern Florida. And kind of during and after the time of slavery, there were settlements, and still are to this day, settlements and communities of Gullah Geechee people that are uh, found in different sea islands and uh, along rivers and in coastal um, areas. And so they've, uh, Gullah Geechee people have been able to retain and still practice to this day many uh, West African traditions mm-hmm. and belief systems and ways of life that have survived through the transatlantic slave trade. And so Gullah Geechee is uh, my heritage. I've been a couple of years ago, I started to learn about um, it's my Gullah Geechee roots and mm-hmm. the history. And so I learned about this great opportunity that was passed along to me called known as the, the Eckleberry Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a fellowship that's offered by Drexel University. And it, they endow nature artists and wildlife illustrators and uh, people who do like environmental art and support different projects such as like if someone wants to write like a field guide or a book or a publication and so I was encouraged to apply and so um, I had this idea with um, kind of with uh, my interest with uh, bird illustration and artwork to illustrate a guide of birds that are connected to Gullah Geechee people and uh, just birds and through some of my research of um, about my Gullah Geechee heritage, I've uh, found a lot of bird characters and symbolism in Gullah Geechee animal folklore. Oh, wow. And so um, a lot of birds were used to convey messages of life and death and freedom and also a lot of feelings that were expressed during the horrendous time of enslavement mm-hmm. and so I received the um the fellowship I'm the Eckerberry Fellow of 2021 mm-hmm. and so I am uh, now in the process of illustrating um this guide in this book and it's this basically the whole message is how birds are a natural symbol of freedom and liberation for the Gullah Geechee people and African-Americans. And so really, really excited to be working on this project. Yeah. And I also love that particular framing because I think when when someone hears the word field guide, the impulse is to think it's just a bunch of kind of disparate entries. They're just like, this is this, this is that. But like having an overarching structure kind of really does differentiate it. And I also wanted to ask about the process of writing and illustrating a field guide as well how research intensive is it? Like, what is the process of researching and creating a field guide? So my process, um, my research process Mm -hmm. for the field guide so far is I've just been mainly looking in a lot of text about Gullah Geechee animal folklore and about stories. And sometimes I would also have to um, either try to identify birds. Like I know Mm -hmm. in a folklore that I read, it was about, um, there was a bird mentioned called a gallinipper. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm, of course, at first I'm thinking Gallinimper. What is, you know, yeah. I, I don't think there's a, a bird that we call today called Gallinimper. And so I kept reading it. And it basically, just from reading, it was saying how it knocks on wood or like pecks on wood. And I first thought, oh, this sounds like a woodpecker. Mm-hmm. And um, basically the whole story is that someone was, I think, was trying to hunt the woodpecker but the bird was able to outsmart the man who, who, mm-hmm. had a, who had an axe. So while they were like kind of fighting or in this dispute, that the woodpecker pecked the tree so hard that it got stuck into the tree. <laughs> and so when the guy, the man, when he tried to strike out the woodpecker, the woodpecker was so strong that it, when it pulled its head back, it pulled up the whole tree out of (laughs) like the whole root out of the ground and so I was thinking wow like this is just a very I don't know just I can just see the visuals of this happening just how this makes me think of like an old cartoon just very dramatic and just and so I was thinking now what what is a, a large woodpecker that you know able to have kind of such strength and I was thinking about a um this kind of sounds similar and they also mentioned how the tree was a uh, a gum tree, and so uh, a species that of woodpecker that was large, and they were usually found in stands of gum trees, mm-hmm. was the um, ivory-billed woodpecker, mm-hmm. and so um, the ivory-billed woodpecker is a large species of woodpecker that's found through the southeast, but they're uh, now declared extinct. And so, yeah, so I was thinking, but during the time, I, I believe the the story, the narrative was recorded in the 18, I think like late 1800s. And that was when the bird was still around. Yeah. And so, so, so just really just kind of researching and looking at these different context clues and like reading these animal folklores and stories. Really, that's kind of my process of just going through mm-hmm. and kind of making, kind of identifying, making a list of birds. And then from there, I just start illustrating uh, the birds that, I, that I've been able to find. And so the illustration process is, um, it's definitely been, uh, I guess, the main part because it's, it's mainly mm-hmm. going to be an illustrated book. Yeah. But I've been, I've just been able to sharpen my, um, skills of like illustrations and bird artwork while here attending Cornell because they have um I took these two uh really amazing uh bird illustration courses while Mm. here and so that has just dramatically just changed my artwork and improved it Mm -hmm. and I want to talk about your illustrations as well because your bird illustrations are so beautiful um I, I I I'm almost surprised to hear you say that like these bird uh, illustrating courses helped you a lot because I'm like, oh, but he's already so good. Like, what what is there to improve? <laughs> uh, but I'm curious if there was like a specific thing that you learned uh, during those courses that really changed um, how you approach illustrating. Yeah. So um, the first illustration class that I took last year, it was um, the art and science of birds. Mm-hmm. So in that class, I mainly, we just kind of learned, like, the basics, like, everything from how to just accurately and, like, scientifically draw birds, um, like, getting proportions right and, like, the bill size Mm -hmm. and beaks. And we looked at 
uh, practice drawing and illustrating different birds from different techniques. And so that really kind of helped me just going through the whole process of just drawing my birds more accurately and making sure like my proportion of the birds of like the the body and the legs or the beak and kind of before I was just kind of um like I would use I would look at a reference of a bird or like a picture mm-hmm. and um I never like checked my proportion I just kind of like mm-hmm. just looked and just kind of say okay the bill's about like yeah. You know, a little this <laughs> gotcha, this yeah. size, okay, that's good. And then, you know, and I guess it worked out fine. But through that course, I really just learned how to go through the process of mm-hmm. analyzing uh, your reference and checking proportions. Got more uh, skilled at, like, the painting process. We also looked at painting and just the use of colors. And we kind of learned a little bit, like, color theory and uh, mm-hmm. just something that was just like, oh my gosh, that sounds sounds complicated. I just get the paint, you know, mix, <laughs> yeah. mix up with the water and just put it on the page, you know. Yeah. And, but this is, this is a really good thing, especially um, help me with uh, kind of a technique that I do now, which is like layering and mm-hmm. kind of just starting off like the basic colors. And then as you go on, you start mm-hmm. um, layering and just uh, really creates this nice, uh, just structured and bold and colorful painting and then uh like texture and and so that so it was it was really um my favorite courses that I've I've taken I would say because it's it's two of my favorite things birds and and art so that it really just sharpened my skills yeah that's really really cool okay so you you've cited the painted bunting as your favorite bird before what I'm impressed by is that every interview that I read where they ask you that it's all you always mention the painted bunting oh, really? yes. very, very solidarity with it yes yeah, my favorite <laughs> bird <laughs> so um yes the painted bunting uh when I first started bird watching I had um got my first field guide mm-hmm. and you know I was just flipping through like learning oh what what birds can I see in yeah. my area and um, I noticed the painted bunting, this is very brilliant, colorful bird. Um, the male, it has a, um, has like a blue head and then like a red throat and belly. And then it has like green and yellow wings. Mm. But the females are actually all green. But um, so why that is, so the males, they have all these uh, vibrant colors because usually that's... Um, to attract females, but mm-hmm. also to kind of that displays the health mm. of the male and also how, um, I guess, kind of how it owns this territory. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm, 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 you know, I'm big and colorful. Yeah. Well, not big. They're kind of small, but um, <laughs> they, they act like they're big and like they yeah. sing. Uh, and the song is very melodious. Uh, that's mm. also my favorite bird song. Mm-hmm. They sing to um, to establish territories and to call off other rival birds or just uh, yeah. And so, but the females. So during the nesting season, when the females care and like lay over the eggs, that's as um, camouflage. And so that green it blends in with the foliage mm. and green. So I that's something I uh, recently learned. I was kind of like, wow, that's. That's really cool how the um, that cooperation in the the painted buntings and how the colors kind of 
correspond to their behaviors and uh, mm-hmm. it's this. Yes, I love that bird so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, what are your other favorite bird calls? Another one of my favorite is this bird called the Montezuma or Pendula, and. I've been able to um, recently uh, have a trip to Costa Rica in January. And so um, on one of our trips, we went to a cloud forest near this place called Arno Lake. Mm -hmm. And so one of my first birds that I encountered there was this bird called the um, Montezuma or Pendula. And it's very Mm -hmm. beautiful and large um, blackbird species. They have like this very just ornate color pattern and like a yellow tail and like mm-hmm. this like large triangular shaped bill. But um, they do like this kind of call display where they kind of like rock back and forth mm. on this branch. And like when they go down, they let out this just very just kind of, I don't even know how to explain. It's just very mm-hmm. like a like a robotic kind of metallic noise and it's very high pitch (laughs) it is bizarre it is awesome (laughs) (laughs) all right so for a final question about bird watching do you have any quick tips or tricks for people who might want to get out there and give it a try my advice for people who just have trouble like going out and have a hard time seeing birds well one thing with like looking through your binoculars and uh, that's something that I kind of struggled with when I started birding, like how mm-hmm. to try to find birds like in the binoculars. Yeah. Like when, whenever you spot a bird, this can be like up in a tree or on a bush. Just always uh, like keep your eyes on it. And then usually with your binoculars, like you just kind of gently just place the binoculars over your eyes. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of helps because sometimes... When it's like, oh, I see a bird, and you kind of rush, and then, like, right. you're looking at just nothing. It's, like, a, the other side <laughs> of the place. It's like, oh, wait, I was trying to find it. But um, what I really found very helpful is just kind of just, like, keeping your eyes on the bird. Uh-huh. Um, unless it flies away, that's that yeah. sometimes happens, and that can um, be a hassle to uh, deal with. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, just by just gently placing binoculars over your eyes, you'll be able to find the bird better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just like adjust the um, the focus with the little knob, and there you've you've been able to successfully uh, find and uh, mm-hmm. view a bird through your binoculars. So, gotcha. So eyes first, binoculars second. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been so delightful, and I hope it does encourage uh, more people to go out and look for birds themselves. Thank you for having me on the podcast, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Up next, Karen and I will talk about challenging preconceptions and the importance of recognizing the complication levels of our creative endeavors. Karen, I love that conversation. Isaiah's enthusiasm for being in nature and his love of birds really comes through. And I have terrible eyesight, which makes bird watching <laughs> really kind of pointless for me. But he made me want to go out and see what I could see and maybe learn to identify bird calls. 
I have to here give a pitch for a BBC Radio 4 show that airs every morning in the US. It airs at 5.58 a.m. It's just before the start (laughs) of the Today Show. And it's called Tweet of the Day. And they just play uh, a bird call. Oh, that's uh, so nice. Yeah. So I sometimes hear it and I think, wow, one day I might Mm -hmm. recognize one of these after the fact. One thing that really struck me about Isaiah was his determination to say, you know what, this pursuit has been associated with a particular demographic, but mm-hmm. there's no reason that that should be. You don't have to avoid bird drip, which is my new favorite phrase. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be as quiet as a mouse when you're out looking at birds or at nature. You can be you in all your glory there as everywhere else. And mm-hmm. that's really inspiring. And I'm wondering if listeners are thinking, you know, I think a lot more people could enjoy my hobby or my art form or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of strategies might they employ to expand that hobby in the way that Isaiah is doing? I think a lot of it comes down to thinking about what kind of rules you've either set for yourself or think have been set for you in whatever Mm. field you're trying to broaden, I guess. And then taking the time to assess whether or not they're actually helping you or hindering you. How low can you make the barrier for entry? Is there a Mm. cost or investment associated with that? How can you circumnavigate that? Because ultimately, it's about figuring out how easy you can make it for someone who's never done it before. For instance, if you keep saying that you need to buy 10 pieces of equipment to do X activity, that's an instant higher barrier for entry. But if you say you can achieve it just as easily without anything in your hands, then more people will be willing and able to participate. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, again, so many reasons why I've never been a birder. Mm -hmm. But one of them is you often need a car because like, these people I know, they seem to go at like 6am and they go off to, you know, some park somewhere. And I, in fact, know someone who learned in her 50s just so she could go see birds and to drive. But I really liked how he said, you know, you can do it in the city. There are some birds. You have to, you know, set your expectations appropriately. But I love that. Another thing that stuck out for me was how many tasks Isaiah is juggling when he's leading hikes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of information and skills building involved in figuring out the route and communicating facts about the flora and the fauna and then the how-tos of birding. But there are also interpersonal skills that are really important, making sure everyone Mm -hmm. feels welcome and engaged. And for something I was writing, I recently spent some time with a tour guide here in Edinburgh. And that job, I realized, is also very complicated because Mm -hmm. of the need to keep track of so many elements. And it made me think of how interesting and actually slightly overwhelming it can be to like... (laughs) list out all the steps that are involved in a process or a project that you do, something that you might even do multiple times a week or maybe even daily. It can be really eye-opening. You can kind of feel good about yourself, how much Mm -hmm. you're doing, or sometimes, you know, it can lead you to make decisions about maybe cutting scope or needing to develop more skills. Um, Is this something you've ever done, just kind of really putting down on paper, like what's involved in a particular process? I don't think I've ever sat down and made a list, but <laughs> it's definitely something that I keep track of mentally. And I think a lot of us like kind of have to just as more plates start spinning in the air. Yeah. Um, like you say, doing something like leading a birding hike has a lot of moving pieces. It's not enough for you just to be knowledgeable about birds. 
And I was thinking about this in relation to the conversation that I had with game maker Jian Shim in another working episode, where she mentioned that she got her start leading these group activities for kids and how much that sort of helped her figure out how to work in a medium that, while it is crucial for you to be a good storyteller, also demands that you be good with working with people. And I think that knowing what your skill set is, or at least your level of comfort, is Mm -hmm. really important in figuring out how you want to move forward in your field. Like, you can work on your people skills and get better at working with people. But if it's just not something that you're interested or find yeah. like puts a lot of anxiety on you to do, it's probably better yeah. to divert your energy somewhere else and find a different way forward. Yeah. And it's really hard to figure that out without actually doing it. You know, yeah. you think you want to do something and then you do it you're like, oh, OK, no. <laughs> I really enjoyed hearing about the project he's pursuing as an Eckelberry Fellow. Mm-hmm. Seems like a really beautiful way of connecting different strands of interest and identity. And it was interesting to hear how he's trying to figure out the boundaries of his project in order to keep it doable. That's really important. And it's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to find that Goldilocks point in any project or it's not too small. But it's not so big you can't do it. You got to find like that just right point. What have you learned about how to find that sweet spot? I think the big thing is you have to trust your gut. It's your Mm. project, so you're in the best position to know what is or isn't working and what you personally are or aren't capable of accomplishing in whatever set time period there is. I think the actual process of figuring out, though, will always look different. Sometimes you'll figure it out in the outline. Sometimes you figure it out while you're researching. And sometimes you only see what the big picture is when you finished a first draft and can take stock of it. And I I guess I want to turn the question around on you a little bit. Like, as someone who is in the final stages of working on your book, like, how did you figure this out as you were writing and researching? You know, I have to say, my ears just kind of perked up when you just said that because I literally just sent off the first draft just a few minutes before we're taping. And it was only literally seeing it all kind of laid out. You know, I compiled all the the chapters and it kind of, I already can see like, huh, yeah, you know, I've I've noted some things. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't that it was a complete surprise to me, but there is something very revealing You know, just as you see different things on paper as on a screen, as crazy as that is in some ways, Mm -hmm. I think just seeing a completed first draft kind of allows you to see, you know what, I think that could stand some beefing up there. And then that kind Mm -hmm. of thought or it's so out of balance. Whatever those things are, I won't (laughs) repeat them just in case my editor's listening. I don't want to give her any material. (laughs) But, But yeah, I just that's where I saw what needs to be worked on still. Yeah. To get back to Isaiah, I loved hearing about his favorite bird. It was really clear how hyped he was when he was talking about the painted bunting. Uh, Karen, do you have a favorite bird? I love a lot of birds. Like I get really excited when I see hummingbirds. I get excited when I see owls or corvids or Mm. like big birds of prey. But if I had to pick just one, maybe it'd be kingfishers, which is also like a very broad answer because it's a family of type of bird. It's not a one bird. But they're all just so cute and squat and often very appealingly (laughs) colorful. So I like seeing them. What about you? Well, I do have literally a favorite bird, (gasps) an actual bird. There's a gray heron who sits in the water of Leith where we walk most days. He doesn't sit there most days, but we walk there most days and he's often there. Yeah. And when he is there, we always kind of spend some time communing with him because... (laughs) He's so big and yeah. he also is 
always on his own, you know, like Aww. there's often other birds around him, you know, maybe some ducks and, and that, but yeah. there's no other herons. And, you know, we've given him a name, we've given him a gender. What, and, is, what is his name? Uh, his name is Harry. Amazing. You know, incredibly inventive. <laughs> but, you know, we actually talk about, oh, I wonder how Harry's doing, you know, and, and yeah. And I have to say, he's also an Instagram star, oh. not as Harry, but I noticed um because there are quite a few tourists where yeah. he hangs out, he does show up on Instagram. So that's cute fair. gray heron in in Edinburgh. Oh, I love that. That's Harry. <laughs> you should start an account for him. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably about six already. But yeah, maybe I will. Now that I've finished my first draft and I've got all kinds of time. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have this week, unless, of course, you're a Slate Plus subscriber, in which case you will soon hear a little something extra from this week's interview. And that's not the only benefit of Slate Plus membership listeners. You'll also hear extra segments on shows like this one, Culture Gab Fest and The Waves, entire bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood and Slow Burn. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Thank you so much to our guest, Isaiah Scott, and thanks to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews, whose call is incredibly melodious. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's interview with writer John Cotter. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>